Welcome to Movable Dough, the podcast where I interview and promote living composers. Join me as I talk with composers about their current projects, their past successes and setbacks, and their personal journeys. For more information about this podcast, please visit sdcompose.com slash movabledough. Hey, this is Steve. Thanks for joining me for this episode of Movable Dough. Today, I will be speaking with Dr. Michael Merrill. He recently completed his PhD at the University of Aberdeen in Scotland, where his mentor, royal composer Paul Mueller, says that he is regarded by many as one of the most gifted young American composers. He has had works commissioned by middle schools, high schools, universities, and professional ensembles in the United States, Canada, and the United Kingdom. His music has been performed by internationally renowned performers, including Alex Boyer, the Canadian Brass, and Pro Choral Canada. Most recently, Mike was selected as the winner of the University of Limerick Ceremonial Music Competition. Mike Merrill, it's a pleasure to talk with you. Welcome to Movable Dough. Thank you very much, Steve. I am excited to be here. Excellent. So when I looked at your bio on your website, it really intrigued me because it's not written in a, a typical academic or professional manner. It's, it's almost more stream of consciousness. And I, I really loved it. I felt like I got to know you a little bit by reading through it. Oh, well, I'm glad. <laughs> so I, I just wanted to start back at the very beginning. So you said you were born in Tokyo to a military family. How long were you in Tokyo? Not long enough to remember any of it. Uh, my dad was stationed there as part of the Air Force. He was an officer there. Uh, so I was born at the Yokota Air Base in a suburb of Tokyo, Tashikawa. Uh, but Tokyo, it's kind of like Portland or Seattle or any of the big metropolis cities. You know, there's the city proper and then there's about... 50 other smaller cities that they're part of it. They're, they're all the same thing. Uh, but yeah, I lived there for about, I think it was about a year and a half. Then we were transferred over to Maryland, uh, lived there for a couple of years until I was about five. And then after my dad retired from the air force, we bounced around our grandparents' places while my dad sought further employment, finally ended up in Eastern Oregon, had a brief stint in Wyoming after six years. And then, we are now stationary in Western Oregon, where I've called home since 2001. That's a, a good long stint in one place. Yeah, it's about time to <laughs> put down some roots. My wife loves it here. Yeah, so I saw in your bio that you started playing saxophone when you were in fifth grade. Um, mm-hmm. but I also saw you were in high school choir. So you were sort of an instrumentalist and vocalist simultaneously. What would you consider your primary instrument? Ooh, it depends on when we're looking at my life. Uh, I actually, I majored in saxophone performance for a good chunk of my undergrad. Uh, but after I realized that when I was supposed to be in the practice room practicing playing the saxophone, that I was spending my time tinkering on the piano, finding out little melodies and harmonies and stuff like that, that maybe I should switch my major I ended up actually failing juries a couple times because I did not put in the practice necessary. I was writing music instead. So I figured out a way to work that to my advantage. Shortly after graduation, sadly, I had to sell my saxophone for rent money. So it would not be fair to call me a saxophonist at the moment. Someday I'll get it back. Yeah. Do you you think that your experience on saxophone influences the way you write? Absolutely. Whenever I write, instrumental music. Absolutely. I've spent ample time in bands, uh, wind bands and wind ensembles and whatnot. And so it, having been in the middle of those ensembles helps me know exactly what to listen for as far as orchestrating and whatnot. Unfortunately, this is kind of embarrassing for someone who almost has a degree in saxophone performance. Uh, I haven't written anything for the saxophone by itself yet. And I've been doing this for a number of years. I actually just started writing my first saxophone quartet yesterday. Oh, yesterday. (laughs) Just yesterday. It wasn't a very good start, but those happen. (laughs) So do you, do you feel like your saxophone playing or do you feel your vocal um, experience influenced your saxophone playing? Take it the other way. Oh goodness. Um, you know, I do in more than one ways. Uh, one of them is that learning how to sing, you just learn how to phrase things in a, in, you know, for a different medium. Uh, and 
because I was never really a solo singer, I was always participating in choirs as part of the sections. Um, so I learned how to have all those harmonies in my head while I'm performing a melody line. And that's one of the great things about choir music is that you have the full score in front of you at any given time. Whereas as an instrumentalist, you usually just have your part. So as an instrumentalist, you need to rely on your ears a little bit more. And as a vocalist in, in choirs, you get to rely on your eyes a little bit more and see how your part fits in with everything. Uh, unfortunately, uh, the crossover wasn't that long, at least in college years. Um, so the, as far as what my primary instrument is now, I think it's safe to say that I'm primarily a vocalist now. Uh, and hopefully I'll be able to do that again soon once everything opens up again. All right. So I know that your your master's and doctorate were both done at the University of Aberdeen. Mm -hmm. So what drew you to Scotland after your undergrad? Uh, during, or during the final stages of my undergrad, I decided rather than looking for where I wanted to study, I was going to look for who I wanted to study with. And so I started looking up some of my favorite composers, and many of them are retired, but one of them, Paul Miller, was still teaching. And so I contacted him, said, you know, I'm an admirer of your music. I'm getting ready for grad school. I see that you teach in Scotland. Uh, you think we could, you think I could, if I was to come up there, could we meet and maybe get a practice lesson in to see if, if it's a good match? Because unfortunately, I think most of us have had, you know, we've had great experience with teachers and we've had not so great experience with private teachers that just whether or not you, you fit or, you know, whatever it is. So took a gamble in a student loan and uh, <laughs> took a week up in Scotland and I got to meet him. Very pleasant fellow. Uh, and we had a little lesson in there and the lesson was actually interesting because at first he was just very complimentary and I didn't want someone who was just always going to tell me, Oh, that's great. Uh, you know, I wanted someone that could push me. I wanted someone that could, uh, that could tell me when my music didn't sound that great. And so before our time ran out, I made sure to slip in something that I had written that I wasn't very proud of that I knew did not work very well had him listen to it. And then he said, Oh yeah, that doesn't work very well, does it? And so we worked on it and figured out how to make it better. Um, and with that, I decided, you know, this is going to be my, this is going to be my, my primary choices up here at Aberdeen so I can study with professor Mueller. And I don't know what they do up there, but their system is really quick because I applied, I sent in the application on a Sunday and that Thursday I had my acceptance. Wow. Yeah, they are really efficient. Yeah, that is really fast. So how do you feel your opportunities in Scotland differed than they would have if you had stayed in the States? You know, I'm not even sure how to answer that fully because I didn't do my oh, that's not true. Much experience for grad school in the States. But remember when I was looking at doctoral programs, the original plan was just to go up to Scotland for my master's degree in vocal music, specifically in choir music. Um, Paul Mueller, he's best known for his choral music. So I thought, you know, that'd be great. Um, but then when it came time to start looking for a doctoral program, options were way open. I, I had no idea where I was going to end up. So I started looking at the doctoral program up there in Aberdeen, as well as over here in the States. I think I'm safe in saying that one of the biggest advantages and could be disadvantaged as well. It's kind of a double-edged sword, but my doctoral program in Aberdeen had absolutely no coursework whatsoever. There was oh. no classes I had to take about modern music, music history, about ad super advanced music theory. It was 100% research-based. So instead of figuring out my schedule and all my homework and everything, I went to the graduate office every day, did research that was, that, I wanted to research on composing on the works of, of, uh, of my favorite composers who I wanted to emulate and meeting with my supervisors. It started off with Paul. I, I was his graduate assistant for three years, but then uh, coming up towards the, my final year, we decided that we needed to make a, a change just because of where we were in, you know, in his profession and in my profession. So I ended up, or I rounded out my, uh, my doctoral work studying with Phil Cook 
which was absolutely the right decision. Paul was so great for so long, but then we just needed a change. Um, But working with Phil really got me going and finishing strong. Uh, So it's kind of, it it, it was both advantageous and disadvantageous in that I got to study whatever I wanted, uh, supervisor approval pending. I got to write a whole lot of music, but I don't, right now, I don't know how to write electronic music. I don't know how to do uh, all the really cool, trendy, modern stuff uh, as a lot of, uh, you know, working with Pro Tools and uh, all these other softwares. I'm very old fashioned. I, I like putting spots on paper and letting someone else do do the work of performing it. Well, during your, your research uh, into different types of music and the things that you were researching, was there any particular time period or composer that you sort of latched onto that you feel influenced the direction you went? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, starting off, especially during my master's, it was hard not to be influenced by... Paul Mueller. I mean, he was right. right there. I was meeting with him every other week and, and I was singing in his choir. So I sang a lot of his music, but as far as indirect learning, uh, three composers really stuck out to me. Uh, actually I'm going to say four of them towards the end of my study. I finally discovered, uh, Caroline Shaw, whose partita for eight voices and her works for chamber music have really influenced my, uh, my writing recently. Um, the other three composers being Arvo Pert, uh, his Arvo Pert and John Tavner's use of harmony and especially their way of using sacred texts in their music has had a huge influence on me. And then probably most would be former, uh, tabernacle choir organist, Robert Kundick. I actually got a lesson with him just a few months before he passed away. Wow. Uh, which was, yeah, it was, that was really a special occasion. I still got a picture of it and everything, but his music, um, his organ music and his oratorio, the redeemer, uh, probably there, I can't say if there's one super above all influential work, but in that category, the redeemer is definitely among them. Yeah. I've heard parts of that piece and it's, it's quite remarkable. Oh yeah. I could go on about it. <laughs> well, uh, let's let's jump back to your undergraduate. Uh, sure. I know you had some amazing composing opportunities when you were an undergrad at BYU-Idaho. I did. Um, you had several pieces premiere with their ensembles, as well as, according to your website, uh, people asking for your songs for senior recitals. And you mentioned mm-hmm. one particular commission from a particular <laughs> young lady. Uh, could you tell us about this story? Yeah, I'm married to her now. Um, <laughs> She So her name is Helen, and she's way too pretty for me. Uh, she's an oboist, a very, very talented oboist. It's not as magical as it might sound in the uh, in my bio, because we were dating at the time. In fact, okay, we were almost engaged at that time. So it wasn't my music that made her fall for me. I think it was my sideburns back in high school when we first met. <laughs> Uh, we met at a youth camp in 2006 and then we were married in 2014. So we knew each other really well before we even started dating. Uh, I'm sorry to ruin the magic of the, the description on the bio. <laughs> nah, nah, I got to come clean. All right. So I know uh, a large chunk of your music is choral. I know you studied mm-hmm. choral and vocal music, but I know you've written other pieces as well. Uh, I enjoyed listening to your Highland fanfare for brass octet and percussion. Oh, that's uh, it. Oh, yeah. Great piece. Great piece. As well as your Rhapsody on an American Hymn for String Orchestra. Mm-hmm. Um, what would you say, outside of choral, what would you say is your favorite medium to write in? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I think it'd be fair to say anything in which I can orchestrate. Uh, so the bigger the ensemble, the better. Uh, I later on, I took Highland Fanfare and reorchestrated it for a full symphonic band. Mm-hmm. And it's still waiting on a premiere, but I have high hopes. 
and I'll be doing it for full orchestra as well. Orchestrating was my first real introduction into composing back my senior year in high school. I actually took, <laughs> I took a piano guys piece back before they were the piano guys. It was a John Schmidt piece called winter wind. Mm -hmm. And I took that piano piece and made it for a symphonic band. And my band director was very kind and he let me perform it and conduct it and everything. And, uh, if I was to go back and listen to it now, I'd probably cringe all the way through. But <laughs> at the moment, that was a huge moment for me. Oh, yeah. Uh, that, was, that was really big. And most of my biggest works as far as who performed them. So, in, you know, I mentioned that, and you mentioned that Alex Boyer and uh, the Canadian Brass performed my works. Those were orchestrations that I got to write for them specifically. Um, Alex Boyer, it was an arrangement of America the Beautiful. And for the Canadian Brass, it was David Danner's uh, Arise Thy Light Has Come. And so I got to write specifically for the Canadian Brass and full orchestra. And the choir pot was already written, so I didn't have to write that. But any opportunity I, I can write for something big is my favorite medium outside of choir. And then when you can combine the two, Man, I am happy as a clam. <laughs> For sure. For sure. All right. So uh, I have more of a, a serious question. Um, we're going to talk later about your your big oratorio, The Martyrdom of the Saints. Um, but I, I would like to first ask, how do you think your your faith has influenced your writing? It has influenced it quite a bit. Um, this is another influence I took from John Tavner. He was a uh, He was a very devout, Eastern Orthodox uh, member. And so, I mean, he had a, he was so devout, so, so into his faith. He had a chapel in his own house. Now I'm not to there yet, mainly I can't afford it, but also, um, yeah, that I don't know where I was going with that, <laughs> but I, I would say, except for a select few pieces of instrumental work music, my faith influences at least to some degree, pretty much everything I write, even if it's not religious music in and of itself. Uh, so uh, my faith, I'm a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and the Latter-day Saint concept and doctrine of Zion, which is uh, a community of unity and of compassion and of love and of uh, service one towards another, influences so much of my music, especially today. You know, it's a these are all buzzwords, but all the divisiveness and the contention and the fighting going on everywhere. I mean, I live an hour south of Portland, which has been in the news for a while because of how much fighting they're doing. Uh, I recently wrote a piece for piano and reed trio called Lament for Kindness. Now, if you were just to look at the notes, there's nothing doctrinal, there's nothing specifically of one church or another in there, but it's the message behind it that lament for kindness that loss of of our humanity for each other we're all we're everyone's so concerned about playing the blame game and and saying whose fault it is and why this political ideology is evil and why this one is just deplorable and and you know all these things going on left and right and then of course there's my choral music it, it, you know it, it's interesting the a lot of the music that I write that is sacred, I try to make universally appealing, at least for the Judeo-Christian tradition. So even though I'll use texts from uh, scriptures unique to my own church, so I'll, I'll use texts from the Book of Mormon, but I'll try to do it in such a way so that Catholics and Protestants and uh, you know agnostic Christians can hear them and still recognize, oh, I believe that too. And even those who have no faith can still attach themselves to the message of charity, of universal love, of, uh, of, of service, and you know, topics like that. That's, that's excellent. All right, I've got one final question for you before we jump into talking about your music. Sure. And this is going to be the hardest one yet. If you had to be stranded on a desert island with only one recording of one of your pieces, which one would you choose? <laughs> uh, 
Um, my knee-jerk reaction would actually be Heaven Haven, which is a small piece for uh, for acapella choir I did a couple of years ago. It's only about two minutes long, but that has actually been my favorite piece that I've written so far. And I couldn't quite tell you why. That's the funny thing, because harmonically and rhythmically and melodically, there's nothing particularly, for lack of better words, special about it. Just the way it makes me feel when, when, I, when I listen to it, it's, it helps to kind of embody a feeling of longing for a better place. Now, I don't think I'd want to take that on a desert island because it would make me so homesick that I couldn't stand it anymore and I would just put it in the, in the sand and cry. But I think, I think I would take the martyrdom of the saints. It's For one thing, it's a lot longer than two minutes, so I'd have a little bit more entertainment time. But because of the message of hope and of uh, promised redemption, of promised rewards for for doing your best and for trying to fix things that you break. Um, I think that one would speak most to me on, you know, if I was to be completely isolated, you know, whether on a desert Island or maybe socially or mentally, when, if I just feel alone, I think that one would speak most to me and give me the most comfort during times like that. Thank you. All right, we're going to take a quick break and then we're going to come back and talk about your music. All right. All right, we are talking today with composer Mike Merrill. Let's talk more specifically about some of your music. I'd like sure. to start with your arrangement of Loch Lomond. So mm -hmm. this is, of course, a well-known Scottish song. It's been arranged countless times by countless composers. Um, let's listen to a snippet first uh, from your arrangement and then I've got some questions for you. Sure thing. With so many composers having put their touch on this melody, what was it that made you want to put your spin on it? The commissioning party wanted wanted me to put my spin on it. I was commissioned by Voce Incorporated, which is a chamber choir out of Connecticut, conducted by uh, the wonderfully talented and skilled and friend of mine, Mark Singleton. He was actually the conductor that conducted the premiere of my uh, my doctoral piece, The Martyrdom of the Saints. Um, but you know, his time up in Scotland and, and there's just something, there's something romantic about the Scottish landscape, you know, the highlands and the, 
and the kilts and the bagpipes, which by the way, pretty much every stereotype you've heard of the Scots is 100% true. <laughs> uh, the, the boys wear kilts to prom and you hear pipes on the streets all day long during the summer. Haggis is delicious. People might slap me for that, but I stand by it. Haggis is quite tasty. So Voce wanted me to write a piece for them. And, and as you heard, there's no words to it. Yeah, that was my, my second question. Why, why no words? I still don't know. The, the reason why I didn't put any words is because they asked me not to. Um, I, it, you know, it's not difficult if I was to go back and just type in some words there and I could make that available as well. But for some reason, I haven't done it yet. Um, here, here's a little thing about this arrangement. I don't like arranging. I find arranging very difficult to mm. do uh, as composed to just writing my own music. You know, how can I take something that someone else did and, you know, try to make it better or different? It's like, no, I'm just going to let him, let him be. But with this one, what helped me through is just thinking, don't try too hard and let it sound like me which is still very difficult to do because even though I wrote a whole dissertation about it, I still don't know exactly how to describe what me sounds like. <laughs> but in the end, I actually very much enjoyed my time writing this arrangement. Uh, I, I've done several arrangements. Many of them can be found on a CD that you could find uh, uh, on Spotify called uh, A Joyful Song with violinist Ariel Loveland. Uh, but I, I've done many so much arrangements so many arrangements however you would say that but i think this one was my favorite uh one because i had such a great experience with mark the conductor uh but second because i knew my time in scotland was coming up and i guess oh, I so this was before this. you went to scotland no uh, uh sorry um my time in my time living in scotland was coming to an end coming to an end okay yeah uh, and so i wanted to make sure to take a little bit of of that home with me. All right, I want to focus next on Eche Sacerdos Manu, Manus. Eche Sacerdos, yeah. It yeah. Latin, <laughs> you know, who knows how to pronounce it. All the, all the Romans, they're gone. All right, we're going to listen to just a snippet of this one. Okay, so this is one of your shorter pieces, only about two minutes, 35 seconds or so. Mm -hmm. um, again, this is the recording from Voce Inc., uh, directed by Mark Singleton. Mm -hmm. Was this piece also commissioned by them? No, this piece was one of my own personal projects that I wrote originally for the University of Aberdeen Chamber Choir. Uh, not as really a commission or anything. It was just uh, at the end of my master's, beginning of my doctorate, and I just wanted to write something. It was actually a reaction against something that my professor had told me. I had finished, recently finished writing a setting of Ovo Somnis, which is a very morose and sorrowful text. Oh, you who pass by the way, look how much pain I'm in. Uh, and I wrote it according as such. It's, it's one of the darkest things I've ever written. And it, it turned out pretty successful. It, uh, they got good reviews and, uh, and a couple of commissions spawned from it. But I was in a meeting with my professor and we were talking about it. And he said, you know, you, you should write uh, this text or this text, things like a Stabat Mater or 
you know, these other things that have a lot of pain involved in the text. And then he said, because that's the kind of music you write. Uh-huh. And I thought to myself, oh, really? And so instead of going, I'm such a disobedient student. Um, it's a wonder they graduated me. <laughs> uh, so instead of keeping going down this line of the dark and the brooding, I decided, let's find something happy. Let's find something celebratory to write about. And so I did a search and I found this Ecce Sacerdos Manus, or Behold the Great High Priest in, in Whose Day Pleased God. And it's just, it's a very uplifting thing. It's a celebration of someone who's devoted their life to, uh, uh, to, to serving the Lord. And uh, I only really found one re- recording of it and uh, or one writing of it and that's Bruckner's but so I decided you know let's let's take Meisman as as dark and as deep as Ovo Somnis was I want to make this as light and as happy on the other spectrum and so that's where we get the 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 pulsing rhythms and the uh just the the overall joyful tone I don't think I think out of all the chords in there, I think there's maybe two or three seconds total in which there's actually a minor chord played <laughs> and everything else. I break so many part writing quote unquote rules that they teach you in, in, you know, your basic music theory courses. I break so many of those to make sure that everything sounds major. I had a lot of fun doing it and, and I've had a lot of success with that one. It seems to be fairly popular and I'm excited to see where it goes. Well, you were very successful with, with what you were trying to do. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it definitely comes across in that, uh, in that performance. Uh, so let's combine the two ideas, sort of the, the pulsating right. rhythm and the, the darkness, uh, mm-hmm. and, and go to Hateful is the Dark Blue Sky, uh, uh, premiered by the BYU-Idaho Concert Choir, conducted by an early influence in my own life, Dr. Kevin Brower. You know uh, Kevin Brower? Yeah I, did, yeah, I did my first year of undergrad at Rick's College back in the day. Oh, really? Yeah, back when he was a young professor. <laughs> hey. All right, let's take a listen to this piece. So this piece is much more dissonant and chromatic than some of the other works that I, I listened to, uh, especially mm-hmm. in the middle when you get to the text, uh, portions and parcels of the dreadful past. Mm-hmm. Um, can you talk about this piece and sort of your relationship with the text? Yeah, sure. Uh, so this was this was commissioned by Kevin Brower for the newly formed BYU 
I concert choir, which was a second tier mixed choir, uh, just below the collegiate singers, but uh, above the men's choir and women's choir. Um, and so when, when he said he wanted me to write something for it, uh, he gave me kind of a free reign on what did I wanted, you know, what kind of piece that I wanted to. And I was listening to some of Morton Lordson's madrigals at the time. And I loved the, uh, oh, I couldn't name it for you right now, which kind of embarrasses me. Um, oh, Ovelas. I think that's what it is. Yeah, Ovelas il Belviso uh, in his, uh, uh, in his Madrigali. And I love the rhythms that he used in the Ove last. And so much of what I was writing at the time and my colleagues were writing, it was very much that other side of, of Morton Lords and, and Eric Whitaker and, and, and Paul Mueller of, of this very luscious, slow moving, let's just bask in every single chord and, and really take it to it. Um, and so I decided, you know, why not write something a little different? I want this to stand out. I, 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 I'm always afraid of getting lost somewhere in the vast array of music that we have now. So I try to stick out. That was one of the things I did with Eche Cicertos, uh, that A lot of what I did with Martyrdom and the Saints was influenced by that on how I, I want to get people's attention. I want to stick out. I want to do, you know, the whole... Terry Crews jumping on the red carpet, doing his famous leap while everyone else is posing in their gowns and their dresses. I want to jump out and go, Hey guys, look at me. Um, and so I found this text by, uh, uh, Alfred Lord Stevenson, uh, of hateful as a dark blue sky. And at the time I was one, I had the idea of writing a full song cycle for choir just based, on the sea because the sea it's very romantic and uh and, and you know everyone loves good old sea shanties <laughs> so i found this and the angst in that text was so great and i don't even understand poetry that much but i could tell the angst and the the nervousness the anxiousness in this text and so i wanted to to portray that with you know a little bit of programmatic music which i don't consider myself that good at i don't i'm not that great at writing storylines within my music uh which is why i let the text do it for me but so in this piece uh you, you know so many things are off about this piece the time changes or the time signatures are constantly changing uh what you just mentioned with the uh, portions and partials of the dreadful past those are augmented triads which during ear training, augmented triads were the hardest ones for me to identify because I couldn't, well, it's diminished, but it's not actually diminished. It, it's definitely not minor. It just sounds, it just sounds off. There's something <laughs> wrong with it. Yeah. Uh, and so using plenty of those and, and parallelisms, uh, which they tell you not to write. I, mean, I, I was told during my harmonic theory courses, every time you write parallel fifths, Bach kills a kitten. <laughs> and so several little kitties were sent to heaven while I was writing this because they are all over the place. Phrases last a little bit too long each time. And then there's the giant crashing wave uh, where I stack, I want to say, I want to say it's a 13 part split at ever climbing up the climbing wave. And, and I'm, I'm so proud of that because I got to put three fortes in a row there are 40 cissimo i still got a ways to go before some of my my mentors when they wrote four or five f's in their in their music but you know i'll get i'll get there someday all right so the last piece i want to talk to you today about is your major doctoral project your oratorio the martyrdom of the saints uh okay. so the, the whole piece is about 40 minutes double choir baritone tenor soloists uh strings percussion and organ you know, when I sat down to listen to this work, I was immediately captivated by the voices giving voice to the uh, martyrs in the first movement. Uh, Blessed are they who die in the Lord. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I read in the review of this piece that these were pre-recorded voices, correct? Mm -hmm. So how did you decide on the wide variety of voices you chose to use? 
I wanted to I, I wanted to find voices that would sound familiar to the audience. And I don't remember, I think I might have actually put it in my my performance notes to find people from the local area who will, you know, who who would volunteer or at least well-known voices. And so what I did is I found and recruited uh, a lot of the ecclesiastical leaders within the community in Aberdeen. Uh, so the uh, the Episcopalian bishop, Bishop Ann Dyer, she's the first voice that you hear, the two chaplains of the University of Aberdeen proper, my own bishop uh, and other leaders. I wanted to find as big of an array of, of uh, faith leaders as well as some of the leaders uh, within my own little mini community in the music department. So uh, my supervisor at the time, Phil Cook, that we, we hear his voice, we hear my wife's voice, we hear um, my librettist voice, Dr. Ray Allison. I owe so much to him. He's responsible for the text of so many of my works, especially the larger ones, and I'm working with him more and more. Uh, he, his way with words is absolutely fantastic. This guy, I gotta give a shout out to him. He is, he's fluent in Russian. The guy read War and Peace in the original Russian for fun <laughs> and had fun doing it. And, and his, he's, all, he's kind of a Renaissance man. His knowledge of opera and of music literature is astounding as well. We work together on, on some projects. We're gonna be doing a YouTube video on Shostakovich's fifth pretty soon coming up on the anniversary of i think his birthday uh so i want to just listen to the beginning of that first movement real quick and when he had opened the fifth seal i saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of god and for the testimony which they held. And it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and slew him. O Lord, my God. Herod the king stretched forth his hands and killed James the brother of John with the sword. And they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and ran upon Stephen with one accord and stoned him. Lord, Jesus, receive my spirit. Lay not this sin to their charge. Bring me in a charger the head of John the Baptist. They brought their wives and children together, and whosoever believed in the word of God, they caused that they should be cast into the fire, that they might be burned oh God, and destroyed. Receive my soul. And now, when Abinadi had said these words, he fell, having suffered death by fire, yea, having been put to death because he would not deny the commandments of God. So I know you probably have about an hour's worth or more that you could say about this piece. Hmm. Um, could you tell us briefly uh, about the genesis of this piece? You know what it means, where what choices you made while you're writing it. Absolutely. Uh, sometime during my master's degree, I was wandering around town in Aberdeen, just kind of thinking and you know sorting out my thoughts and everything, uh, meditating on on what I wanted to do and different ideas of music I wanted to write. And uh, very close to the university campus is St. Macker's Cathedral, which is the old, one of the oldest buildings in town uh, that predates any English version of the Bible. In fact, I, actually, I think it predates any printed version of the Bible. It's that, it's that old of a cathedral. It's been rebuilt several times, but the foundations are still there. Um, but on the west wall of the cathedral is this beautiful stained glass window of Jesus and the apostles, but each one of them underneath their portrait 
shows an emblem of how they died. So it had uh, Peter being crucified upside down. It had, um, I think it was Bartholomew being flayed, uh, Andrew being crucified on a saltier cross, the X-shaped cross. And looking at that, I thought to myself, you know, how great would it be to have a piece of music performed here that was dedicated to those who paid the ultimate price for their testimony? And that idea stuck with me. And, and I decided, you know, I'm getting ready to apply for my doctorate, my doctorate soon. Maybe I can make that my big doctoral project is to write that piece. What was it that uh, Tolkien and C.S. Lewis, with the reason why they wrote their books, uh, is said that they wanted to write the books that they wanted to read. So I decided I was going to write a piece that I wanted to hear. And so, you know, from there, from that little tiny earworm of an idea, sprang this thing. And there was so much that, so many different influences that came into it. Uh, you mentioned, and we heard the voices going over. This is embarrassing, but that idea actually came from Kenny G. Oh, really? To have, <laughs> to have voiceovers. Um, so first off, I'm going to defend myself by saying it's Christmas music. You're allowed to get cheesy. Uh, but in, his, in Kenny G's album, Faith, his, uh, his version of Auld Lang Syne has voiceovers of a lot of key moments in history, starting with a recording of Thomas Edison speaking into the first phonograph saying Mary had a little lamb. Uh, and it goes through you know, the moon landing and it goes through um, Lou Gehrig's farewell address to the Martin Luther King assassination. And, uh, and with those, it was actually, it was the Martin Luther King announcement when Robert Kennedy announced that he had been assassinated. That was when I got the idea to use voiceovers in my own work, uh, which is the, my very first time using electronic anything mm -hmm. in my music. And so just as all these great historical moments were portrayed in Auld Lang Syne, maybe I could portray moments either of the martyrs, their dying words, such as Stephen, you know, Oh Lord Jesus, receive my spirit, lay not this into their charge, uh, to verses about martyrs, about, you know, Cain slaying Abel and whatnot. Uh, but it went through several, several drafts before we finally decided on the final of and Ray Alston. And once again, just his insight and his knowledge of, of the different texts that we use. This was one of them that, that we really wanted to make sure was universally appealing to the Judeo-Christian Judeo tradition. And so you'll notice if you study the libretto, with one exception in which a character from the Book of Mormon is mentioned, everything in there is doctrinally universal to anyone who, uh, who claims to be uh, a Christian or a, a disciple of Christ. Um, which is something that I wanted to do right from the beginning because I, I don't want to write for niche audiences. I, I, I want my music to be available to everyone. It's, it's, it's actually written down somewhere around here that my mission statement for how I write music is to uplift and edify others through new music. And the more people I can reach, the better chance I have of achieving that goal yeah now i have to say one of my favorite moments in the oratorio is the beginning of the fourth movement uh the light of the world this choral thing that that comes out right at the beginning of that movement the simplicity the sort of the hymn-esque writing sort of leading up to the turmoil of the fifth movement mm. um it was it was extremely calming to me uh, at that well, moment. Yeah. Um, do you have any moments that stand out to you as particularly memorable spots that you really like in this piece? Yes. Um, the whole, the whole fourth movement is a very peaceful one. And that one is my biggest homage to the late Robert Kundick, mm -hmm. uh, in, in which I took a lot of influence from his setting of the Magnificat in the Redeemer, the, my soul hath magnified the Lord. Um, the third movement as well has a lot of homages to 
past people who have influenced me, one of my past professors at, at BYU-Idaho, Ida Ashby, um, her oratorio, The Tree of Life, which I had the opportunity to premiere, uh, was probably the single most influential moment as far as music is concerned in my life. Mm-hmm. That could take up a whole other episode, so <laughs> I, I won't go too far into that. But uh, there is one moment at the beginning of the seventh movement. Now, for those who listen to it, the fifth movement is very chaotic. It's, it's, you know, it's earthquakes and tempests and just, and, and turmoil and, uh, and just utter chaos going on while the, uh, as you know, the wrath of God is coming down. And the sixth movement is very gray. It's supposed to be kind of this vacuum of nothingness. And for anyone who has experienced clinical depression, uh, I know from my own experience, it's not necessarily a feeling of sadness. It's not necessarily a feeling of, of sorrow, but it's this feeling of not feeling anything. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to portray that in the sixth movement as, as the, as the collective people are, are beginning the process of repenting of realizing, Oh, we have not been doing what's right. So we need to change. And at the end of that movement, the baritone soloist who represents the Lord comes in and says, you can change. And I, that's the whole reason why I did what I did is so that, uh, so that I can make you what you want to be. And as that transitions into the seventh movement, during the duet between the tenor soloist who represents just the, the kind of catch-all prophet, uh, when he says... Um, you know, I await the day in the resurrection when he, the Lord, will say unto me, and then that duet there, I'm actually getting slightly choked up just thinking about it right now. Um, when the prophet and the Lord sing together. So the tenor soloist says, I rejoice in that day when this mortal shall put on immortality. Then shall I see his face with pleasure, and he'll say unto me, and this is the duet, come unto me, there is a place prepared for you. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter thou into the joy of the Lord. And from then on, the music is just glorious and triumphant and fanfares and it's just oh, every heaven's open yeah the hallelujah at the end is gorgeous oh thank you i had a lot of fun writing that one <laughs> just getting the percussion to go nuts <laughs> um, i'm working on a fully orchestrated version of it as well and i oh i'm excited for that one but it's that moment of peace right at, i guess you could say right as you're crossing crossing the threshold uh the finish line there's a uh uh, there's a painting called Journey's End that is one of my all-time favorite paintings. And it's it's so simple. All it is is it's it's Jesus hugging someone. We have no idea who this who this person is, but you can see his face as he's hugging the Savior back, and just that look of exhaustion and relief and and, and just it's the face that says I'm finally here, and that's what I tried to do in this music. And I'm, I'm, man, I'm getting a little emotional just talking about it. <laughs> well, I have to say the the review online didn't do your piece justice. It was more about the performance than the piece, but the, it was a spectacular piece, and I really enjoyed listening to it. Thank so you I, very much. So I want to know what sort of projects do you have now? I know you said you're working on saxophone quartet. What else are you working on right now that you can oh, talk about? Yeah, uh, yeah. There, there are a couple of secret ones that <laughs> uh, that my librettist and I are are engaged in um, that I'm really excited about. But uh, a couple of projects that I'm currently working on is orchestrating a lot of my stuff. So taking things that I've written for uh, for either a small chamber ensemble like the martyrdom written just for strings and percussion and organ. I'm writing that for full orchestra now, um, to another large sacred piece I did mass for the last days. That is 
instead of just for organ and choir, that is becoming for wind band and choir. I think there needs to be a lot more wind band music, sacred wind band music out there because uh, most major symphony orchestras, they, they like sticking to the old masters, which is great. And everyone needs to, needs to hear that, but they're kind of skimping out on the new music. Wind bands, however, they're, they're right up there with the new music <laughs> and they're, they're doing us justice. Um, this ongoing project, uh, which I really need to get back on. I got so busy with something, but uh, my isolation music project in which I took commissions uh, from pretty much whoever to write small pieces for an instrumentation that you could play at home. This project was started just as the quarantine hit. Hmm. Um, and Perfect so I thought, yeah, well, I mean, it was because of the quarantine when I realized, okay, ensembles are down can we still do chamber music? And so I've written pieces for, uh, you know, for solo harp or for solo voice. The most interesting one that I wrote was for viola and organ duet, but played by one person. That was interesting trying to figure out because, you know, the organ can do the feet and then the hands can do the viola. Um, that one was called, it's called foundations. We're still waiting on the recording for that one. Um, but these are really, you know, stretching my ability because they're for all different, excuse me, all different uh, uh, expertise levels. Mm-hmm. So the one I'm currently working on now is for piano and trombone duet. It's a mother and son. Uh, the pianist is very proficient, but the son is just beginning. And so how am I going to write a piece of music that people want to listen to with a beginning trombonist? Right. And so that's a unique challenge. But I think the, the the project that sticks out the most that I need to give a shout out to is a lot of band composers are writing things for flex band nowadays. Now, yeah, that was a new term to me. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's really taken off. Um, as students are going back to school, conductors don't know what their ensembles are going to look like, especially since a lot of these reintroductions to schools, it's half and half, half the students will be there one day and then the other half the other day. Who knows what a band's going to look like there. And so composers, uh, and I get to include myself in this now, have been writing pieces for fully adaptable or flexible band. And so I was recently commissioned to, uh, to write, rewrite all five Mariner songs, which includes Hateful is the Dark Blue Sky, for flexible band and soprano solo. Premiere date is still to be determined, but that was just finished a couple weeks ago as well as my Heaven Haven and Benediction, both simple choral pieces that are now for FlexBand, and those are available at uh, Murphy Music uh, Publishing in partnership with the uh, World Association for Symphonic Bands and Ensembles, the WASPI. That sounds really interesting. It's been a lot of fun, and it's a whole new challenge. Yeah, so where else can people find your music? MikeMerrill.com or not MikeMerrill.com, MikeMerrillComposer.com. I have no idea where MikeMerrill.com, it might be a comedian, it might be (laughs) an interior designer, but MikeMerrillComposer.com is where nearly all of my music is, as well as I try to keep it updated with what's coming up next. And I like to have a, a little progress bar on there as far as where I'm at with different projects uh, that's, uh, that are currently in the making. Um, as well as Classical Chatter, the YouTube channel. That's where I do fun little silly music education videos that we dissect scores or uh, we look at history. Uh, we're, I'm currently working on a new one on Shostakovich's Fifth Symphony, and that's due out in November. And uh, sometime soon, uh, my choral sheet music will be available on JW Pepper. So keep an eye out oh, for that. Very cool. Congratulations. Thank you. Well, Mike, I really appreciate you coming on Musical Dough. It has been a pleasure to talk with you today. Oh, pleasure's all mine. This has been fun. My guest today was composer Dr. Michael Merrill. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to your favorite podcast provider. To hear previous episodes, visit sdcompose.com slash movabledough. If you'd like to continue this conversation or share your favorite music by Mike Merrill, join us on our Facebook group, Movable Dough Listeners. If you have show or guest suggestions, 
please email me at movabledoe at gmail.com. This is Steve Danielson. Keep the music moving. <laughs>